Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Joe Kaderovac, who's the CEO of Cobalt Blue. They're an ASX-listed Cobalt developer. Um, we're not going to talk about their company today. We're instead talking about the macro thematic for batteries. Obviously, Joe uh, is very passionate about cobalt, but we look at renewables pricing versus fossil fuel generation. We look at EV sales and subsidies going on around the world. And we look at behaviors, so uh, individuals, companies, and governments and the way that they've been affected by the COVID outbreak. Um, and we also look at COVID trends versus COVID impact uh, and how that is affecting the markets. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Joe, how are you doing, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. No, well, it's great, great to have you back on again. I think you, people really enjoyed your last um, uh, conversation with us. We sort of helped us understand sort of the macro thematic for, for Cobalt. But just for people new to this story, why don't you give us a few minutes on your background and perhaps even Cobalt Blue before we kind of get into the macro story for co- or update on the macro story for, for Cobalt and uh, the battery thematic? No problem. Thanks, Matthew. So for those I've not met before, my name is Joe Kadravik. I'm the CEO of Cobalt Blue. I'm an engineer by background. I have a, a mix in my background of investment banking. Um, uh, I was head of resources at Deutsche for a period there as well. But also I used to run um, hedge fund money in investment. And that's where I first came across energy storage as an investable. So I've got a, about a decade or, or, or longer under my belt of investing in, in these thematics. I've been CEO now for four years of Cobalt Blue, and we are bringing in the largest greenfield supply of cobalt in the world into production, uh, nominally 4,000 tonne of cobalt metal equivalent. We're based in Australia. We're an ethical source of cobalt, and our production philosophy is both a mine and a refinery. So we're going to be making a high-value intermediate, an MHP, or a battery-ready cobalt sulphate. Uh, Just briefly on the project, uh, we'll be at uh, final investment decision in 18 months. We are re-scoping a PFS, uh, where, uh, if you like, cost optimising a PFS, which will be due in the market in the next three weeks. That was on top of the original PFS. We're very excited about the economics that that will showcase to the market. Beyond that three-week mark, we'll be building uh, a pilot plant by year end and then a full-scale demonstration plant. Um, and that'll prove up our uh, production processing Uh, What's really important to note there is that we'll be releasing commercial samples to, at this stage, we have 10 global partners who are interested in in that offtake and potentially in the project. And to date, three of those partners have allowed us to name them publicly. That's LG International, Sojitz Corporation and Mitsubishi. So a lot of the conversation I'll have with you today will um, not necessarily from a particular partner, but will give you the flavour of what we're seeing from our commercial partners. So for us, it's a big project. Uh, FID in 18 months, and in the near term, we've got a catalyst of a, of a cost optimization study. Thanks, Joe. That's, that's fantastic. Sounds like things are going well. You must come on and uh, tell us the Cobalt, uh, the Cobalt Blue update story. Um, but today, we're going to help people understand what's happening on the ground. You know, the the reality of the situation versus the kind of you know the, the commercials that you're seeing and you're hearing with your conversations now. Obviously, travel's a bit of a, an issue for you guys, even in Australia. Um, so it's hard to get around. But what are the? Who are you speaking to? How are you getting a sense of um, you know the a, a, what, what's happening in the Asian market or even globally? Sure. So um, 
I just touched on our development where we'll look to to provide sample. Now, um, those partners have, have volunteered to be part of that process and to be very clear about that, what we want to do is pre-qualify as a supplier to tomorrow's battery industry effectively. What we're seeing through our contacts in Asia, so Korea, Japan in particular, but China as well, um, we've recently um, started talking commercial, commercially to India. India is a fascinating market, albeit coming off a low base. And importantly in Europe, but Europe is, and I'll touch on reasons why shortly, Europe has had a huge catalyst in terms of its, its own uh, formative views on battery take up as well. So the, what I'm hearing is a huge disconnect between a very positive long-term cobalt demand or battery materials broadly story and what is when I speak to investors a very negative near-term story which is plagued by demand destruction low oil price causing issues with you know transferring across to EVs and the like and to me um, I've never seen such a gap in the time I've been CEO but there's, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors at play here um, and I think it's important maybe we kind of you need know, to talk about some of those or get, get your sense of, of, of uh, where those things are. So you, you mentioned there oil prices impacting, you know, the battery thematic. Um, you know, we, yep. and there's also within that there's, uh, you know, the consumer buying behavior, people's predictions. And I've seen polar polar opposite um, yeah, guesstimates yeah, by brokers, right? You know, literally opposite ends of the spectrum. They're, they're making completely different calls um, from each other. So I don't think there's a, a consensus as such, but what, what's your view on where this is going with the, with the consumer behavior for, and what does it mean for the, the, the battery manufacturers? Let me break down my answer in, in some components, but first and foremost, what I'm seeing in, in, during this COVID period is an acceleration of trends which were already in place. Okay, so some of the trends which you know I hope to talk about with you today uh, are decarbonisation on, on the renewable side. Some of those uh, solar and wind um, policies have been around 20 years. Uh, electric vehicle subsidies have been around 10 years. I'm not seeing any radical new government policies or company behaviours as a result of COVID, but I am seeing a number of crossover points where economics favour the battery outcome. And I am seeing a number of policies which are being re reinstated at a much more aggressive level because of COVID that will accelerate the transition. Um, in terms of overall consumer behaviour, I can stratify the answer between what we're seeing in the renewable and, and energy storage sector and in the EV sector. The EV sector, if you don't mind, I'll keep to second, but I'll just talk about renewables firstly. So very long dated trends, but because of COVID, we're actually consuming less energy this year as, as economies around the world. And because of that, in, in particularly in power terms, what we're seeing is, is prices, pricing is dropping and high costing uh, fuel sources are being knocked out. And because solar now is so cheap to deploy, now solar, to give you some idea, is around 30 US dollars a megawatt hour to install en masse. Um, if you try to do that with a brand new coal, fired plant, you're roughly talking 60 megawatt hours. Now, there are exceptions. There's entrenched coal, which is lower than that, but that's a broad rule of thumb. But because the amount of solar and, and wind that's coming in, lower prices is forcing out some of the incumbent coal. There's two tipping points, which may, I think, will interest people. Firstly, in the UK, a small um, quirky one is that 
for the last two months in in Britain, you guys have been running on zero on zero uh, coal, believe it or not. Um, the more interesting one and the more profound one is in the US this year, it's predicted will be the first year in US history where more, more power will be generated from renewables than from coal. That crossover point happened last year. That's not a COVID issue, but it's been accelerated because of the price drop and the fact that it's accelerating the decoupling away from coal. And then let me be really specific because there are those out there who say, oh, you're counting certain statistics. When I mean renewables are outstripping coal, I'm talking about solar energy, uh, thermal and photovoltaic. I'm talking about wind and I'm talking about hydro. I'm not talking about nuclear. Just those three renewable categories this year will eclipse coal. And once you've baked in renewables, you ain't losing them, not on these economic trends. And what's even more interesting in my mind, and, and, and I'm going to quote our colleagues at Wood Mackenzie here, they estimate by the end of the decade, solar and battery will become the lowest cost peaking power in the world. In other words, the gas plants you see around the world now, which are on standby during peaks, they'll be displaced within the decade by solar and battery storage. So the, these grids are going to be incredibly dependent on renewables. Now, as an engineer, I need to stress though that it's not a one-way street. There's a limit to how, many, how much renewables you can hook up. There are issues such as frequency, stability, et cetera. But in general, the trends are extremely positive towards large-scale take-up of renewables and ergo large-scale take-up of, of, of battery and lithium-ion technology. These are, these are uh, very profound trends that are in place before COVID, but have been accelerated um, because of the COVID effects. Okay, so that's interesting. I, I think one of the interesting things you said there, actually, Joe, was the, the you mentioned nuclear in passing and you'd separated it out from renewables because I think the market does see uh, nuclear now as, you know, as, as zero carbon fuel. So it's as part, as part of the mix, but that all that weight of you know solar, hydro, and wind, and nuclear is creating a very difficult um, problem for fossil fuels. You know, so so which is going to have a knock-on effect on, on, on pricing you know across the board. So, do you, what do you, what do you think with regards to the renewables? I mean, are we, are we going to see um, you know them can them continue to gain ground? Are we going to see cheaper prices? I mean, what's, what's it look like? What we're seeing in Australia, and I am skewed because Australia is a, is a, has a very high solar resource. Um, you know, we're, we're the Spain, if you like, equivalent of, of, of Europe. Um, so we are skewed towards um, a solar and wind. But what we're seeing is firstly an abundance of capital being deployed in this country, and the same as in Europe. Um, um, typically, um, superannuation pension funds will take the other side of that exposure. If you give them a three, four, five, six percent coupon, long dated, um, decarbonized, they love that. So they'll, they'll be part of that infrastructure build. There's good money available there. Um, we're seeing utility scale um, deployments now on an unprecedented scale. These are 10, 100 times bigger than they were even only a handful of years ago. There are limits now, they are stressing the grid here, then I'm sure the same as in Europe, because um, there's limits to how much you can deploy. Ultimately, solar generates during an irradiance period it's very small and then you want to be consuming that in a peak period that's hence you need the battery but there are other issues such as frequency stability etc there are other issues in terms of um, being able to transmit from where you're 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 generating the solar into where you're you're demanding the power 
but nevertheless, we're seeing a tremendous take-up, and I think there'll be an engineering limit to that deployment, which the economics will run at very hard. There will be some coal that's entrenched, some very low-cost coal in the in in the world and and in Europe and and US in particular. So, they're basically generators that sit on top of coal mines that you're not going to get rid of from an economic force. But the vast majority now. Um, there is risk to, and the term investors use is stranded asset. You risk making stranded assets. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, peaking power, which has always been that standby power um, for gas, if the battery deflation forecasts are correct, I think within 10 years, you're going to start to get a tremendous uptake in a different style of power generation for, for solar and, and battery. And all of that, you know, is, is very positive for battery take up. It's, it is very positive. It's been driven by consumers, it's been driven by governments. You've got funds now who are changing their their direction, like people like BlackRock over here is a kind of the big example we use, where they won't invest in fossil fuel companies anymore. Um, so th- there is, I think that the mood is changing and that usually says that money will be made available for inf- the infrastructure for projects to get built. But it comes, but it comes back to the question, which is around you know buying behaviour, consumer um, attitudes um, at the moment. Having been through what is quite a shocking period for most, you know, in, in the sense that the COVID nineteen is not something that most people have experienced before. You know, markets haven't ex- experienced to this degree before. Um, so, despite money maybe being made available, the consumer buying behaviour there will be a gap, won't there, in, term, in, in terms of this buying. But the infrastructure is is in place. I'm thinking mainly about you know the automotive sector, for instance. They've invested three hundred billion dollars to date on their battery or you know predominantly battery driven vehicles. So they're not going to be swayed by COVID nineteen. Uh, you know the short term repercussions there. But consumers consumers may be. But that, that has a knock on effect for things like um, you know subsidies. The need for subsidies. Well, the continued need for subsidies, because, you know, are you seeing that? Let me quote from um, something that I saw recently. A, a, a UBS do a rather good series of polls of, of uh, consumer discretionary purchasing. Now, what they do is they look at the top seven automotive markets in the world and they ask a bunch of very typically simple questions. What's your preference for purchasing a vehicle? Is it a battery vehicle? Is it a, an ICE, etc.? And for the first time, and these are stats that have just come out in the COVID period, um, driven by trends that were in place, and I'll go back to this pre-COVID trend, coming into Q1 this year, globally, we had over 300 uh, unique battery electric vehicles uh, on, on in, in the consumer market. Now, you go back 10 years, that was maybe 20 vehicles. You go back 10 years, you had a low cost, low range, low quality offering effectively a and, and, and this is a bit of a disparaging quote, a, a golf cart for one of the description. Now, uh, Tesla and others have been fantastic at changing that whole image. But today, battery electric vehicles are such high quality, infrastructure is in place, so range anxiety is not the issue that it was before. And the badge says it all, so it's a badge they know. If I'm a, in, in Australia, if I'm a Ford driver, I'll go back to a Ford. And, and what UBS found is that the first time in the poll's history is provided two things are in place. Um, condition number one is that uh, consumers now want a 300 mile range. Now I'm a, I'm a, a metric engineer, so that's a 450, 500 kilometer 
range, which is a fair range. And two, provided there's broad, but doesn't have to be exact, but broad price parity between the two. What we're seeing is that, sorry, what, what UBS reported was that first time in the poll's history, people are now preferring battery electric vehicles. And what the impact of COVID is on the psyche is people are waking up with clean skies. There's no, in particular, a, a, a large chunk of the particulate matter, the smog that's around them is, is from vehicles. So people who were sitting on the fence till now have largely gone past that, is it a high quality, do I get the range? All those issues that plagued EVs four or five years ago are now done. COVID's woken up and there's a clean sky out there and they're saying, you know what, I'm going to invest in these things. Um, and I think subsequent to that, the scale of subsidies, and I'd like to touch on those if I can with you, is so enormous that it's causing the, the purchasing price of these mass market vehicles to become decidedly in favour of, of an EV purchase. And if, you've, if I can just touch on some of those, uh, in your neck of the woods, there's been some fantastic policy decisions, fantastic from the point of view of EV take-up. Um, let's talk about the Germans. The Germans re, uh, are talking about, yet to be um, established in legislation, uh, a 9,000 euro subsidy on cars up to 40,000 euros. Now that's a whopping great big sticker deduction. Now that makes that car automatically um, reams cheaper than an ICE vehicle. So that shows you the scale of the subsidy. Secondly, the Germans are also talking in the public in their public policy about mandate, mandating EV infrastructure at every gas station. It is an overwhelmingly positive idea, though it's interesting. Even the EV um, uh, pundits are saying and the experts are saying not necessarily practical because that's tens and tens of thousands of, 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 of rollouts. But it shows you the positiveness. In your neck of the woods, the UK government's talking about a £6,000 straight cash for clunkers deal. And that's a straight conversion from an ICE, an old gas car, into an, an EV. What's fascinating, I find, are the French. So the French have earmarked €8 billion, Euros, again, a COVID decision, to largely bail out their national um, automotive industry. Five billion of that is, is being earmarked for Renault. And what they're going to do is use taxpayer money to retool their automotive processing. And they're going to retool along two broad lines. One is um, uh, environmentally friendly internal combustion engine vehicles, so very high spec um, uh, diesel and, and gasoline cars, no doubt of that. But a large chunk of that, and we've yet to see the final policy, will be directly EV support. So what we're seeing is uh, taxpayer money being used here and now as a result of COVID to make decisions that, that the likes of Renault and others wouldn't have made for maybe a couple of years and may not have had the capital to deploy for a few years. So when I talk about COVID being an accidental catalyst, we can talk about renewables or EV, but there's a whole bunch of little data points, such as the, the Renault experience, that point to me that not only is that retooling occurring, but the subsidies are in place. And I'll just comfortable landing on the French, the government target is for um, domestic producers to make a million EVs per annum uh, in the near term. That'll put them way well past the Germans um, and that'll set off, I have no doubt, some competitive domestic uh, policy between them. It also means all those subsidies I talked about also means that this year the Europeans will overtake the Chinese as the biggest EV market in the world and will then will maintain that. Um, 
let me just go across the Atlantic now into into US because it doesn't get a lot of coverage. Um, I personally think one of the biggest catalysts for EV take up is a change of incumbent in the White House. Now, I'm not being political. Uh, you can you can have your own view on that. But it's really clear that the Democrat has a, uh, a carbon neutral policy in place. He stated that. If he were to become, if, if he were to have the keys to the White House, you would have undoubtedly have a significant EV policy take up in the US. Already in the US, um, 47 of the states have EV subsidy policies in light of almost no subsidies at the federal level, to give you some idea of the, um, the self-help that the states are going through. So these are, these are states which are basically going it alone. Um, I, I think that's the nearest catalyst, and certainly that's not being talked about in the market as, as, as an option. In China, where um, we, the market's been very focused on EV take-up in the last few years, and if you recall late last year, second half, EV subsidies were coming off, and EV demand was coming off, and that's the whole reason the market tanked. So they've actually now rolled forward two years their existing policies um, from a cobalt perspective, if I can just briefly touch on, on, on something that's dear to my heart, they're range-based subsidies. So they're not subsidies that will go to any vehicle. You have to have a certain range, and those range are high energy density batteries, which typically which contain cobalt. Um, and they've been rolled forward two years. One of the most interesting statistics I'm hearing from COVID, I appreciate that the Chinese entered the COVID um, period earlier than the rest of the world, but already in May, the statistics that are coming to light show that year on year, the May uh, EV demand is actually up year on year, which is phenomenal if you compare that to global autos, which are down typically 50, 60, 70 percent in most jurisdictions. I think that surely would be skewed in the fact that in um, April and March, there probably wasn't a lot of buying. That might be a little bit skewed, but but the interesting thing I was that the thing I heard there was that because of the subsidies, because these governments all across the world are either maintaining or rolling forward or putting in place subsidies, um, you know, at the grassroots level all the way through. The, the the big long pole in the tent for me was always the the um, automotive companies needing to recoup their R and D costs on these new. Uh, EV cars, and therefore we, the consumers, are having to pay you know fifty percent premiums for the pleasure uh, of doing business with them. Um, if these subsidies do remove that, or mostly remove that, uh, you know, premium, as it were, then I think that that's the last barrier here. So, what does that mean for investors? It means that you think the automotive uh, industry will sell you want to use that china example i guess we'll need a couple more months to sort of see what's happening elsewhere in the world but you think there won't be a gap to fill there won't be a a reticence on behalf of investors who've been through covid who've been through that shock of covid um and uh, you know the need to keep money you know in their bank accounts or you know or under their pillar wherever they keep it you think that the markets will get back into business quickly yeah look i think and let me be very clear, I, I'm still talking about a four quarter effect. I'm not, this is not the near term. I just make a point, Matthew, on that China stat. I quoted May, but that's a year on year stat. So in terms of uptick, it's not a, it's not a near term month on month trailer. So that is a, a bit a small data point, but. But how do you work that out? I mean, obviously last May, the figures were what they were. And you know, May, you're saying this May, it was slightly more than last May, right? Year on year, right? But if no one's done any buying 
in April or, or March, there's a kind of cumulative component there. So I think that was the point I was trying to make. Okay, I see. Yeah. No, no, I get that. There, but uh, I'll just go back to the UBS data that we've seen. Um, there's an effect of who's... Uh, it was named after some economists I've subsequently forgotten, which is when you want to make a purchasing decision to a new technology and you defer that decision, you, act you actually don't go back to the old technology. You've, you've baked in that decision. So I think the in the Western world where household purchasing has been delayed, um, or we talked about the oil price before, um, that I think those decisions will be deferred, but will ultimately go back into the to purchasing an EV as such. The other point I'll just make whilst we're on oil, a lot of jurisdictions in the world, and I know the Chinese are one, and, and I think the UK are another, you simply can't translate an oil barrel at $40 to an equivalent uh, pump price. The tax structures are not added the lorem tax structures. So we're not seeing that subsidy, uh, that that uh, cheap oil flow through to the consumer pocket as per some of the thesis that I've been, been reading about. So cheap oil doesn't necessarily mean a cheaper running cost for your ICE. I think, well, I think that's right. It's definitely being borne out around here. Um, it takes a, a while for it to hit the forecourt, and by the, by the time it does, it uh, markets have changed again, and we, the consumer, get screwed again. Um, <laughs> but let, let's, let's talk about company. So we talked about consumer behaviours there. Can we just talk about some, some more around these sort of company behaviours? So again, I'm, as an investor, I want to know how companies like yours, like Cobalt Blue, are thinking about the way they go about business in, in times like this. It, you know, some choose to kind of hunker down and hope it all goes away and some, you know, want to get back in, uh, into business. But you, you, how, how have you changed your behaviour through all of this? Yeah, look, I, I would say this to you, because we're in a, a fairly idiosyncratic, a specific uh, metal such as cobalt, and because a large part of that demand is in the battery, and that's certainly the way our production philosophy is slanted towards batteries, the pre-qualification period for our, to qualify, excuse me, our cobalt into tomorrow's EVs is such a long dated process that COVID hasn't necessarily changed what we do. And I'll be very specific. Some of the design um, feedback that we're getting suggests that uh, a new EV takes four to five years of engineering and design to get into, into production. What we're hearing from our battery partners, it takes two years to pre-qualify a battery into a, a, a particular vehicle. So uh, uh, when you think of an EV battery, it's a highly customized um, chemistry set effectively for that vehicle. So what does that mean for the upstream players like ourselves? We're being tapped now for interest to pre-qualify, to then pre-qualify again in a particular battery type. And I'll, and I'll give you one broad example, um, the Chevrolet Bolt, which is being rolled out in Europe, is a 500,000 um, unit initial deployment. Now, one of our partners is, is the sole supplier um, into that particular market. And if you take all the engineering that's gone into it and then the, the lead times, they are significant programs which affect all of the upstream materials producers. So from our point of view, we're such a long lead, high hurdle to into production business that really COVID is is a blip um, as opposed to if you were a copper miner or a zinc miner where you're selling a cons or a, or a, or a, or a, or a, a low value product into a very liquid market. A huge liquid market is completely the opposite to what we do. 
Yeah, that's, I think I think that's a good point to make. And there's going to be other um, commodities um, who are in the same boat as you, and there'll be lots more yep. in the in the in the copper camp. Um, I think that I think that that's kind of fascinating to me. What, again, from an investor's perspective, you know, what should we as investors be thinking about now? Should we be because you know I think a lot of people dump their stock, you know, during the the, the peak, and you know we've seen some great V-shaped recoveries for for most companies and most uh, commodities. Um, I mean, for me, it was a perfect time to buy, quite frankly. It was, it was wonderful. But um, what should we be thinking about the future? Is this, is this slow, steady-state growth? Um, are, there, are there some big catalysts to look forward to if, if indeed like, some of these subsidies do kick in quickly? I mean, where should, where should we be looking? I guess the first guidance I'll give you is that in energy storage as a whole, so we've talked about, briefly touched on consumer devices, but largely talked about large-scale utility energy storage. Um, that's including small scale, uh, you know, um, storage in your home and then EVs. There are so many different end niches for energy storage for batteries that no one technology will be the winner. So um, I'm old enough to remember, and I'll probably uh, confess my age here, old enough to remember the VHS um, beta argument days where one technology had to win. It's completely the difference. You're going to get three or four different technologies win here. Even within this cobalt versus no cobalt battery space, there were room for both battery types. The LFP battery, the non-cobalt battery has a certain niche, lower energy density, cheaper battery, and has a certain niche in China. It's a very Chinese-oriented uh, chemistry. Um, the thrifting of, into the high nickel batteries will have their own uh, mass market, longer range style. And then I think that's the bulk of the EV market. In terms of energy storage, I don't even think a lithium-ion necessarily has a natural uh, advantage in some of the characteristics those batteries need. Those are long-dated batteries that that shouldn't have very large discharge capacity, should have multiple cycles. And there are other technologies like flow batteries that may lend themselves more readily. So what I'm saying to investors is there's enough niches out there and different technologies that don't necessarily assume there's a plain vanilla solution to all. Um, I believe genuinely that both cobalt and non-cobalt batteries will survive next to each other in different niches. And so do your research on the niche as well as the material that you're looking at. That's probably my first point. The second point is what we learned from the last 18 months is that uh, demand can often be overhyped. And we saw that in the cobalt run in 2018, that basically this demand was going to go on forever. And what happened was... um, it didn't really take off to expectation the rest of the world. And in China, they turned the tap off. So be prepared to test the thesis. Is someone going to buy that vehicle without the subsidy? Would have been the right question to ask two years ago or last year. Today, I think the subsidy gives you an, an obvious answer. But if you want to put risk in that to test that thesis, ask yourself, what happens if that artificial incentive is taken away? Or conversely, what happens if uh, uh, an automotive producer manages to crunch battery costs, particularly this so-called cell-to-pack uh, cost structure that some are focusing on, is that a catalyst on the upside? So really have a good long look at the risk factor and don't be blinded by the long-term growth rates here. And I think we're going to see another cycle effectively ahead of us. And in my mind, we're seeing commercially some, some initial building blocks of that cycle in place today. Interesting. That's very fascinating. Um, 
question around the way that company companies get bat, well certainly the battery commodity companies get financed do you foresee a change in the way that people go about getting financing i mean you you've talked about you know three strategic partners having a look at you know what you're what you're doing um we've had tesla talk about buying large you know lithium companies and you know trying to be sort of end to end from well from my mine to car um as it were so which is traditionally you know these companies get funded by you know they kind of get funded by strategic partners or big banks or big institutions that's the way but are the automotive players going to become a little bit more all-powerful and try and control that entire supply chain, um, you know, to, you know to, to, to some degree. I mean, are you seeing some of that? Are those the sorts of conversations you're hearing? I think the answer is yes and no. What I'm seeing is some are, some are going upstream and trying to, to get the security of supply they need. Um, and some are creating um, uh, preferred supply networks within their battery producers and giving their battery uh, manufacturers the confidence to do their sourcing upstream. So some of the, the bigger EV makers in the world may never own mines, may never own a precursor maker, may never even actually own a battery facility, but they're encouraging their suppliers in turn to commit to production runs of the, of the scale that we talked about. Because you talked about before about costs and R&D costs. Economy of scale is a huge thing in, 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 in this market. So if a a global EV producer can give its battery makers the confidence to source cobalt or, or lithium or, or on a scale that's say a five or six year production run of X quantity. And that means that that maker has to make a, a purchase in the upstream then they'll provide that. One of the things you've got to remember in both lithium and cobalt space, there's really no uh, terminally traded market for both. Now, I, in a previous interview, we talked about the fact that cobalt's traded on the LME, but it's not a marker that has any significance from a financing perspective. So as a business, when we go, go into production and we have to, well, sorry, prior to that, we have to show a bank a, an offtake agreement with a battery maker at a fixed price in lieu of a market that we can say, here's the long-term curve for the market. So again, copper, I can point to an 18, 24-month time frame and say that's the futures market i can hedge it can't do that in battery materials so not only are production runs large and long dated we don't have the the ability of an intermediated liquid market to sell into we need a champion typically a battery champion or a precursor champion to, to straddle the fence and say here's your offtake agreement and go take that to the bank or conversely take the capital and invest in us directly and help us but it, it it's tough without an lme liquid market without a, a terminally traded market it's it's tough okay because i think we we got in contact when i think one other ceo described the battery market as being crushed because of, of covid oh, a bit you know three four weeks ago your response is actually i think that's not the case and what i'm hearing from you today is actually the future is bright and investors should not be concerned oh look i'll, I'll be a little bit cynical i i I don't care. I, I, I really don't care what the near-term effects are, the two, four-quarter effects. They're largely in the price. If you look at the um, the companies that are trading in this space, and, and Cobalt Blue is a good example, we've all had the down wave. We're all at peak fear right now. And so if you haven't positioned yourself for the negative effect of COVID, guess what? It's too late. I don't think it's interesting It's to d discuss that um, at length. What I think is interesting is this dichotomy between what we're seeing commercially 
added on top of that what we're seeing from government response and 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 um, company decisions and on a four quarter two-year basis we're seeing some genuine positiveness in this space um, and you know traditionally battery uh, materials investors traditionally were long dated investors they've some of them have forgotten the reason they invested they got burnt on the downside um, what i'm saying to you now is i think there's plenty of positiveness um a be it not in the market at the moment not in the investment market uh, that will come to the fore over the next one to two years brilliant joe look thanks thanks again with your your take on the on the market and your view and some some great stats um to, for people to no maybe go rummage around and see what else they can they can dig up but um you must come back on again so it's always fascinating talking to you you've got that the kind of uh, you, you're a CEO of Cobalt Blue, but you're also an ex-banker, an ex-hedge fund manager. I mean, I, I guess you, you'd probably be working up a big thesis, but why invest and, and why now? Would you? Yeah, look, I, I look at to be really blunt about it. The Cobalt sample program that we're going through with with our feasibility studies in our pilot plant, um, it's 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 a case of where we're getting interest now where we didn't we wouldn't have thought interest would have come this early. And, and it's largely to do with the thesis we talked about. These are long dated offtakes. The purity and the specification is at a premium. And if you're a non-African source, an, ethic, an ethical source, a safe jurisdiction, you're absolutely in the right place at the right time right now. Beautiful. Thanks, Joe. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.